Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome to In the Context of Empire. My name is Jonathan Lancaster. This is episode one, and me and Matt McKenna just cracked. What did you get for us, Matt? Double this nickel. This is a double nickel Pilsner style lager. Thank you for And it's from the local section of the ShopRite liquor store. Yeah. It is delicious. Matt, tell the people who we are, what we do. So, John and I are two social studies teachers at a school in New Jersey. We both teach the same subject. We teach United States history. Uh, that's the first half of United States history. And then uh, John teaches several other courses, of which I actually don't know Me off neither. the top of my head. <laughs> uh, high school. And I, I think you, did you mention high school? We are high school his, history uh, teachers. Elementary and uh, like I said, we both teach U.S. history, the first part of the course. And I teach AP U.S. history. And John teaches a variety of other subjects seminar it's all about seminar. Really no sure one knows what it does throughout the day matt you made a blog and now we're making a podcast called in the context of empire we've had, had a people. productive pandemic I yeah. <laughs> we have i've done nothing but tell the people what this blog is about and what is the context that you're seeking to provide so most of u.s history is taught in a way obscures the fact that I think is the main, that should be the main focus of learning U.S. history, uh, and that is that we are an empire, and that we, ever since the first European settlers landed in Virginia and Massachusetts, this has been an empire. The United States expanded across the continent violently, subjugating peoples, spreading along the way, spreading slavery. Uh, through wars of conquest, through through treaties that were uh, often violated. Uh, and once it was across the continent, it spread across the, the Pacific Ocean. And the United States today, if we just fast forward a little bit, is the most powerful empire that has ever existed. You know, and we can talk about why that is. Uh, just to give you an idea, the United States has 800 military bases that we know of around the world. <laughs> The United States has a $740 billion military budget. Uh, China, who is supposedly a big rival of ours, has a budget that's less than half of that. Russia's budget is about $70 billion. Uh, back to the bases, you know, we have these 800 foreign bases. The combined rest of the world has 70. Russia has about 10 to 20, and they're all around Russia. China has one, and it's in Africa. Uh, we talk about the world financial system, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, these are U.S. institutions based in the United States. Um, we influence the U.N. in a way that almost no other country does. We have poll that no other country does. The U.N. is based in New York. Culturally, the United States media plays globally around the world. Um, and I just think that it's kind of odd that whereas the British Empire was very aware of itself as an empire, here in the United States, people don't generally think of it like that until, unless you get into a almost uh, leftward school of thought. Uh, you know, once you, you've read your sufficient amount of Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn, and that's considered in most circles somewhat on the radical side, but it's just 
without even a value judgment, we are an empire. We, if any other nation started as this small group of states on these, let's say, let's pick another part of the world. If a, if a nation had started as a small group of states or provinces on the edge of Africa, on the east coast of Africa, and then spread across Africa to where it occupied the entire continent, we would not be calling that just a regular country. We'd call it an empire. Um, and then what I will say is a value judgment. I think we really need to start looking at the way we talk about history uh, as almost presenting it as U.S. as the United States is the protagonist. Um, well, that's actually what I want to ask you about that because, as you know, as history teachers, we've had a lot of discussions about the way history is presented, both you know in the public sphere and also in school, and also now it seems to be a hot topic with national conversations. I don't know if you saw John Oliver's recent thing. I think you sent it to me. I, right? I sent it to you, but I, I'll be honest, I didn't watch it. <laughs> Actually, one of our... I, one of, I, I, he's someone that I, I have a... I, I'd say he's hit or miss. He's def- we can well, get into why, but that's kind of off topic. I don't think his humor is great, but you know, he usually produces pretty good stuff. But actually, a student sent that to me. Oh, really? Like as well, yeah. That, that, you know, that shows that you're doing your job. I'm trying. But um, along with that, like, talking about both... We'll talk about how like schools perpetuate these these things that you're talking about, but I'm curious about your personal arrival at these conclusions, like the trajectory. Because I'm assuming both in school, maybe even early outside of school, you didn't have these beliefs. I don't know, but how did you arrive at the conclusion that America is an empire, along with all these other conclusions that's around and built off of that? Well, I'm kind of ashamed to say, like even not just through high school, but even through college, I really didn't come to that conclusion. Um, you know, I, I went to high school in a time when my third year of high school, 9-11 happened. But that followed a long period of time. You're old. Huh? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm 35. Uh, that followed a period of time in the 1990s where American empire, while it was still very much in existence, in fact, there's probably no period of time where the United States was more dominant in the world than the 1990s. Um, but the United States wasn't in these wars. I don't want to say that the United States wasn't at war because the United States was at war throughout the 1990s yeah. in various places, Somalia, uh, bombing Serbia, Kosovo. Um, yeah. But it wasn't in your face like where American soldiers were not coming home in boxes often. You didn't hear that, or I wasn't privy to the level of anti-Americanism that is was certainly around the world then, but wasn't as pronounced as it was both after 9-11 and then during the wars on terror and, uh, you know, all this long precedes Trump being the president. But of course, now uh, you, you can hear anti-American sentiment for, from not only Trump's actions, but the actions of our government overseas. Um, and I'll be honest, the, the after 9-11, I, I wasn't particularly political. My family was Democrats, generally. Um, I don't remember them being too uh, cautious about what the United States would do after 9-11. I, I, I remember members of my own family calling for bombing uh, the Arab world, and yeah. that seemed a little odd to me, but at the same time, it just kind of seemed like the logical outcome. I remember this, my senior year of high school, the build-up to the war in Iraq, and it was almost like cartoonish. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this again, but it, I kind of supported it. Like, I, you know, when you grow up in the 1990s, the, the media portrayals of Saddam Hussein, oh, that's that bad guy. You know? Yeah, like, I was telling you about this, too, because I was 
9-11 happened when I was seven, six or seven. I was, I was six actually. So, and I was talking to you about this as well, where my perception, I can still remember, um, that rhetoric that Bush put out. I, I, I didn't hear it from Bush. I heard it probably from my parents or someone else, but I just always remember like they did this because they hate our freedom. And, and that, that was the reason like they hate our freedom. Right. And that's, that kind of language just goes kind of unquestioned. And I didn't question it. Right. And uh, when the United States did go to war in Iraq, it even took me then a, a, a little while to realize just how imperial an action that is. When you, if I was an, I would like to think if I was an adult at the time, I'd understand. You know, the, the idea that Iraq was a threat to the United States. We can get into like what kind of condition Iraq was in at the time, but I'm sure we'll talk about that with my article. But. Yeah. Iraq was one of the was under the heaviest sanctions that have ever existed in the modern world. Uh, we're talking about a country that repeatedly had had uh, made attempts to uh, illustrate to the UN that it had gotten rid of its weapons. You know, we yeah. the thing is, even if Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, you'd be hard pressed to make a cohesive argument as to why that was caused to invade another country. But going to like what what's the like, how did you come to these revelations? Like, you go from, right, like, I'm not political, I'm, you know, I'm kind of in support of this invasion of Iraq, or Afghanistan, I should say, right? Um, I mean, I I wouldn't say I was, like, gung-ho about either, sure, but, but like, I was like generally supportive of, you know, I was American at the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how do you move from from that to where you are now, which is... The intervention, the military intervention in the Middle East and abroad, these 800 military bases are all a mistake and are a force. For, I'm going to guess you're saying a force for kind of evil or at least instability Absolutely. in the world. Yeah. How do you go from, yeah, let's invade Iraq. It seems like an okay thing to do to the position you're at now. Well, it's been a, a few different experiences. Uh, one was the first earliest was probably when I was very inspired, st- stupidly, by John Kerry's run for president. Mm. I remember thinking, well, Bush is just so evil. And then... Um, and why was he evil? Well, by the time the presidential election of 2004 came around, the Iraq war was going very badly. Okay. And I knew it was going badly, but even then it was still like, it's going badly because Americans are dying, never mind the, you know, the, the orders of magnitude greater amount of Iraqis that right. are getting killed. But um, So I remember like his loss... And then, yeah, subsequently being kind of coming to the conclusion that actually Kerry was really not that much better than Bush. Mm-hmm. Kerry was someone who was extremely militaristic, yeah. um, who kind of turned his back entirely on his pretty respectable career, uh, early career as uh, someone who spoke out against the Vietnam War uh, and identified that war as, as the horrible human rights uh, tragedy that it was. Then years after college, uh, I lived with my a very good friend of mine, Dan. He's very now I'd say he's very much on the left. Uh, he he'd been drifting leftward basically since college, and he he kind of put me in touch with some of the crimes of the Obama administration. That that if you are someone who is vaguely on the left or liberal, you don't really pay much attention to. He he's the person that brought attention to me some of the drone strikes that were occurring, the assassination of, of uh, American citizens without due process, uh, some of the wars in Pakistan and Yemen that we don't really even hear about. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was kind of an eye opener for me. So this happened like post Bush, like post Bush. And even then I, I still wasn't very, uh, like this has never be something I would write about or barely even argue about. But then last couple of years, um, especially since I've worked where we work, (laughs) uh, I've been challenged by both students and by what I feel like is a culture in the United States right now of people who claim that they're on the left, or I I shouldn't even say that, I should say people who are liberal, Mm -hmm. that acts as if the United States suddenly went bad when the United, when Donald Trump was elected yeah. president. And I see that as incredibly dangerous. I felt that it was dangerous when Trump got elected. I did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton either. I saw her as, we can talk about what she, she's problematic in a lot of ways, but I, I, I struggled to understand how it, how is it that Donald Trump came to be president and then all these liberals lost their mind there from the Russia gate phenomenon where to his impeachment where sure impeach Trump for a million reasons but it, right. it is funny that the reason he gets impeached right. is for denying weapons sales to a country <laughs> True. that is engaged in conflict with Russia it's something that Obama didn't even do right. um, uh, it and this this kind of talk where like he persistently uh, is is concluded to be soft on dictators as if what would it mean to not be soft on dictators so it just seems like a very right wing attack on trump that i think is incredibly dangerous so i've been drifting more and more from being kind of a vaguely liberal person to now i'm very much on the anti imperialist left and i i despise the the idea that we need to be at war anywhere. And, you know, I, I've started reading, especially the last two years, about not just the, the current Middle East wars, um, of which there are many. Uh, I'm not just talking about Iraq right? and Afghanistan. I started reading more about the, the Spanish-American War. My my wife, as of Saturday, I'm getting married <laughs> on Saturday, is Filipino-American, and I, I did want to learn more about the United States interactions in that part of the world. And I've come to the conclusion recently that if you look at the wars in U.S. history, there's really nothing to be proud of. So you would say this is a rel- relatively recent conclusion of yours? Probably last developing two developing one, but like yeah. what you've said. I mean, I, I would, if you'd even talked to me a year and a half ago, I'd never considered writing about it. Wow. Well, I think you t- also touch upon like the ingrained, and we've talked about this a little bit, but like it, it also goes into why it took so long. You're 35? I am 35. Took you thirty what thirty three years to really start drifting in towards like America, like the realization, or at least like settling on the conclusion that America is an empire, and right. a pretty interventionist and violent one at that. And why? Yeah, and it, it's I'm not going to blame anyone but myself. And the information is always there. That's it's well. Just, that's what I'd be like. Why is it, or what's the problem with how we are learning history? Or Americans are learning history that something like that. Which again, you say is kind of objective that America is an empire. It's not really a judgment. It's a. It's kind of just a fact that America has been spreading ever since. Ever yeah, since. and and exerts in a, a influence over the world right. that just no other country so, has ever approached. So, like, what is the the problem with how we are learning history as teachers? 
we kind of have that kind of perspective educationally, but like maybe even more generally, what is the problem or why can't we see what you're saying? Well, I think it starts with the lack of identification of the United States as an empire. Mm -hmm. And, and that's something I've only recently been able to, to do. Um, I think it starts with also the presumption of, of innocence of the United States. It's, it's the way we talk about specific figures, um, the way we both sides it with figures in U.S. history. That we talk a lot about. I mean, that. I do like nuance. Absolutely, right. I like nuance. But the way that we will both sides it with a figure like Andrew Jackson, that we would never do that with a figure from another country who oversaw the ethnic cleansing of an entire population. Uh, the way that we can talk about someone like Henry Kissinger being, you know, yeah, he did some negotiations with China. So this guy is responsible for millions of people dying. And the, the way that we can look at someone like that with nuance, but the way we just look at someone like Fidel Castro is, oh, he imprisoned a lot of people. He's And the level of nuance that we grant American figures that is just never granted to people on the official enemies list of the United States. Um, I think that if you want to teach American history, you have a special responsibility as an American living in the most powerful nation ever with the power to exert uh, uh, exponentially more violence on people around the world that has in the last 70 years especially exerted mo the most violence of any country on the world that you have a responsibility to not just teach U.S. history in a way that makes you feel good. You have right. to teach it in a way that will educate the next generation to be cognizant of what their nation has done and because that will educate you as to what it will is likely to do in the future. Yeah. I mean, just when it comes down to it, like, just look at it objectively. If any other country, I'll just do the last two, last 70 years, never mind, never mind the last 240 years. If any other country in the last, since 1945, so about 75 years, had dropped two atomic bombs on, on civilian cities, had invaded Korea, <laughs> killed one-fifth of the population through firebombs, napalm, uh, bombed every civilian city to the point where they ran out of bombs and had to start bombing bridges, making up targets. If if any other country had invaded Vietnam, intervened in a civil war, and killed anywhere from two to four million people, depending on who you ask, to poison the 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 forest and the the countryside, so that people today, you know, yeah. more than fifty years after the, uh, after the Agent Orange was dropped, are infected by generations later are affected are infected. Uh, if any other country had a war war on terror in response to an attack that killed three thousand people, which in response to 3,000 of our people being killed, we killed roughly a million, more than a million people who had absolutely nothing to do with those attacks. If any other nation had a global torture program, a global program of extraordinary rendition, kidnapping, uh, a global surveillance network, if any other nation sanctioned, sanctioned the half a dozen countries, uh, to, to the point of which you have, uh, civilian starvation and lack, and, uh, lack of medical care that kills thousands of people, if any other nation who would speak in my article had been involved in, in total complicity, if not outright perpetration of half a dozen genocides, right. 
we wouldn't just frame it as this is a objectively, you know, we talk about one side of the argument, we talk about the other. We wouldn't talk about it in these kind of unbiased, in these neutral terms. Yeah. We have to identify the United States is in the position it's in today because of a an amount of extreme violence that has exerted on the world yeah. and the people of the world. Yeah, and I think... I think, again, I'll give you what I would think would be the conservative pushback on that in a moment. But I think that goes into um, the first article that you wrote, which is the deceptive nature of the red, white, and blue, which you wrote on Independence Day, um, where you discuss basically that the United States, despite the American flag supposedly standing for liberty and freedom and justice for all, perhaps, that... Mainly the articles about foreign policy, although you talk a little bit about domestic policy toward the end. But the ma- major point, I think, is that if you look at um, the United States foreign policy in regards to other nations across its history, that you're trying to say that it's, it's been uh, restrictive and suppressing uh, liberty of others. Um, what do you see as like the most egregious example of the United States suppressing liberty um, <laughs> abroad? Well, again, there's there's a lot of examples of this. Uh, I mean, if you just want to talk about more shameless imperialism, nowadays we, we quote our speech about imperialism in the United States, yeah. even though we're doing objectively the same thing. Uh, but I think what the United States did in the Philippines was a pretty ghastly example of denying people their self-determination and, and freedom. And what I mean by that is that for a plethora of, of mis of lies and uh, disinformation that the United States involved itself in the Spanish American war. They did point to, as we frequently do human rights violations and, and uh, oppressive behavior by the, the Spanish empire in places like Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Now, undoubtedly the Spanish were a colonial empire. And of course they engaged in horrific behavior. But the way that the United States used that at the end of the 19th century and utilized the, the malfeasance of the Spanish to insert itself into a colonial, to several colonial struggles in Cuba and in Puerto Rico and the Philippines really shows you where the mindset of the, of the leaders of the United States was at the time, and I would argue continues to be. And what I mean, what I mean by that is the United States, especially in the Philippines, joined with local independence movements. They they promised aid to groups groups like uh, uh, Emilio Aguinaldo's group in the Philippines. He's a general. Uh, he had a. It was not a united group. Uh, united Philippines for independence group. Uh, there were other factions, and there were some rivalries. But the big picture is the United States sided with people in the Philippines who were fighting for independence. You know, some would argue it was similar to the way that the United States fought for independence right. against the British. Right. Um, but as soon as the United States defeated the Spanish, with a lot of help from the Filipinos, this, the thought of self-determination was immediately jettisoned. And you have... Uh, William McKinley making a famous speech where he talks about how he had a vision from God that he had to, uh, he had to take on the Philippines as a, as a burden, you know, like as a white man's burden, <laughs> right, uh, he's right. very inspired by 
Rudyard Kipling, and he, that he had a responsibility to Christianize the Philippines, let alone the fact that the Philippines had long been Christianized by the Spanish. Like the, most of the Philippines it re, it was and remains uh, Catholic. And then the, the Filipinos, in response to this proclamation by McKinley and the subsequent actions of the United States to ke- keeping the Filipino independence movement out of all negotiations with the Spanish, and then uh, subsequently trying to control the island for themselves, the United States, there was a big Filipino independence movement that rose up against the United States. And in an effort to crush that insurgency or rebellion, the United States resorted to brutal tactics, concentration camps, where they concentrate the, con- the population in specific parts of the islands, where if you were outside of those areas, you could be killed. We're talking about torture, the use of waterboarding. It's not something just from the war on terror. This goes way back to 1898. Uh, the wholesale slaughter of populations because, because of that familiar, uh, process of not knowing who the enemy is because they, right. because of the lack of distinction from yeah. the civilian population. And, you know, we're talking about the same army that fought Native Americans here was then fighting Filipinos in Asia, and the same level of racism and devaluation of life uh, was present there. You talk about in Vietnam, much later, uh, 70 years later, you start hearing that word gook, uh, which is a racist word for, for Asian people. But it actually started as gugus in the Philippines. And you have all sort of doc- all sorts of documentation of American soldiers dehumanizing the Filipinos who we're essentially fighting for self-determination. So back right. to the freedom question. Right. When I say the United States doesn't stand for freedom, it seems like the most basic idea of freedom is the freedom of peoples to determine their own destiny. And the United States, not just in the Philippines, although that's the, one of the most brutal examples, has stepped in the way of self-determination for peoples around the world yeah. repeatedly well, and, and continuing to the present day. Sure. Um, well, let me ask you, like... Again, I'll push back a little bit with the, I think, a typical conservative viewpoint or, or point about this is I think, you know, when we talk about Donald Trump and other conservatives, I think they get a lot of support by saying, like, America first, like, put America first. And what what would be your response to folks who say, like, yes, perhaps the United States has conducted, you know, a lot of these military interventions, has 800 bases around the world, even conducted those actions in the Philippines that you're talking about all in the in the name of enhancing the lives of american citizens for example um i guess this really actually comes to like what's the point or why does a country even exist so how would you respond to a conservative saying like yes united states has done some things abroad but the the you prime, did some things you did some things <laughs> but the the motive behind those things was to secure the liberty and freedom, the things that we're talking about with, associated with the flag, and secure wealth and American interests, um, all of those things uh, for American citizens. How would you respond to like that kind of argument? Well, I'd respond in, in several ways. The, the <laughs> first of with which the fewer I'd say swear words, is... fewer swear words as possible. Yeah, the, the idea that y- you can justify these horrible actions overseas because you're trying to say that you're making your own population safer or more wealthy. I mean, we can get into who else did that in U.S. history, and I hate to jump to Godwin's law, which is when you compare things to Nazi Germany. Sure. But 
Hitler's expansion into other parts of Europe and eastward into the Soviet Union was exactly to improve the lives of what he, who he considered the German people. And, of course, there are groups that were left out of that concept of German people. Uh, I don't think we would accept it if when other gr- countries commit what are essentially war crimes in the defense that they're making life better for their people. Now... <laughs> There's a lot of things wrong with that argument. The second part of that is, I would ask, which people? Which Americans are benefiting from having 800 military bases around the world? Which Americans are benefiting currently from the United States uh, decimating the Yemeni population through its proxy in Saudi Arabia? Well, I I can tell you who who is definitely benefiting it. A very small amount of weapons contractor CEOs. Uh, When we talk about like the coups during the Cold War, uh, we can talk with their uh, financial interests that were certainly benefiting from the United States installing more friendly governments to to govern countries in which there were financial interests. An example would be Guatemala, where the United States overthrew the government for the United Fruit Company. We could talk about a lot preceding the Cold War, even uh, in Hawaii, when the United States overthrew the sovereign country of Hawaii's government uh, to install a government that would be friendly to dole fruits interests. Yeah, I don't know if that, like, I, I think I think the corporations that, that deal particularly with either weapons contracting or, or things like you're talking about do obviously benefit from these things. But I don't know if that, that actually brings down the argument of, of having these type of military interventions or holding some type of weird neo-colonistic... Uh, neo-colonialism? Kind of, but it's like a military... It's like with the military bases, so it's, kind of, it's not quite... Are you typical. talking specifically about military bases? No, no, I'm not specifically talking about military bases. I'm talking about more of just the, the, the kind of intervention or kind of like global... Um, the kind of global power that the United States has now because of all of these, inter- all these past interventions that you're talking about. Um, that argument though of like, well, we have these, we've done these things and we have what we have now because we, we want to make American citizens as safe, as wealthy, as, you know, have the best conditions for them as possible. Okay. So we have a, we have a helicopter, a helicopter flying over, over our head right now. Um, so you, you said two things, safe and wealthy, and I don't think those things are uh, necessarily mutually exclusive. And or, Sorry, I don't think those two things are synonymous is what I mean to say. Now, safe, that's an interesting concept because, you know, in the last 30 years, what's the, what's the most devastating attack that's ever happened on American soil? Most people would say 9-11. Most people would say 9-11. Now, did 9-11 just happen because... The terrorists hate our freedom. Well, that's what George Bush said. Right. But that's what, what I believe Osama when bin I was Laden, seven. Yeah. Right, right. A lot of us believe that. What Osama bin Laden said and pointed to were very earthly grievances that most people can identify with. And what were they? They were the United States has military bases yep. in the Holy Land in Saudi Arabia. They were, it was that the United States continually supports Israel and the subjugation of Palestine and, at that time, Lebanon. He pointed specifically to the Kana massacre where Israel killed several hundred civilians in, in, in bombing. I'm not sure where that was. I, I guess it was in Kana, Lebanon. This was uh, back in the 90s. 
it was that the United States continually provides support and arms the uh, Arab dictators. We're talking about like Hosni Mubarak, the dictator, the royal family of Saudi Arabia. I'm just not... I'm not convinced at all that that any of these military engagements are making us safer. If you take a look at the the allegations of terrorism, it, the very few that are in FBI entrapments, and most of them are <laughs> yeah. a whole other topic. Yep. It has never once been this this defense of of the alleged terrorist or would be terrorist that the United States is a place that has too much freedom. Right. It is always that the United States is conducting itself in a way overseas that is killing people. And it, it, you, when you look at like the underpants bomber, it, yep, uh, yep. or you look at uh, the guy who tried to set the bomb off in Times Square, he's pointing to very specific and true grievances. And the, I believe that Times Square would be Times Square bomber was talking about Obama's drone war in Pakistan that was killing civilians on a very regular basis. So you're you're basically saying that the interventionist policies that I think many of the people who set up those policies were doing it in the name of keeping America as safe as possible. Would you agree with that? Like, even if it was misguided, that was the attempt? I think you're granting them a lot of them. All right, fine. Well, here's what I would... Here's, here would be my next question. Moving on, and you kind of mentioned a lot from, from actually your other article... The extermination nation, talking about the genocides committed at the hands, either genocides committed or complicitly committed in a way of the of the United States. So, my in the beginning of that article, you actually give kind of a a shot at America being complicit and not acting in in um, times where there were clear genocides happening in the world, and the United States was aware of these genocides happening in the world. Um, yeah, I so did. You want to um, well, for, before I answer that question, sure. I'm very I happy. Even, to, I didn't uh, even ask the question yet. But go ahead. I also wanted to address the the idea that our interventions overseas are somehow making us wealthier. Sure. Yeah. Now, sure. George Kennan, the cold architect of the containment policy, did say yes. something to that degree. Something I think you and I would say is nationalistic and very ethnocentric, but it, very much in line with what you're saying about the wealth. He said. I'm going to get the quote wrong, and I'm probably not going to look it up. So it's something to the effect of right now the United States has 5% of the world's population, but we control 40% of its wealth. It's something number like that. The goal of all of our policies should be to maintain that imbalance. Yes. Yeah, yep. So if a country's goal is to just be wealthy at the expense of the rest of the world, I suppose that Kennan's theory is correct. Except the United States, we, you and I know, and of course, most people who end up listening to this are probably familiar <laughs> with the fact that it's not as if the United States gets rich and all of us get richer, right? right. We have an extremely uneven distribution of wealth in this country. Yeah. We have 1% of people, I think, control 40% and maybe even more of the wealth. Yeah, it's, about, it's about 38%, I think. Now... Is that an imbalance that we're comfortable with? And if not, is the imbalance of the United States controlling 40% of the world's wealth? This is after World War II. I don't, the, the balance is, is not the same now. The, right. But it's still, I think, roughly 20% of the, of the world's wealth. Is that making us safer? Is that making it into, it, does the wealth of the United States make it into the hands of average Americans? Um, does 
the dominance of U.S. capital over the globe make the average American more wealthy? And I, I would dispute that it does. Uh, I don't think that, A, that wealth is a justifiable reason to... Sure. I mean, we'll get into the events, but we're talking about events that kill sometimes millions of people. Sure. I don't yeah, think yeah. that's a justifiable excuse to begin with. But then you'd have to ask, like, who's wealth? Who Who is actually profiting off of this global dominance? Right. Yeah, well... Again, like, and then I'm happy to talk about some more. Well, I can actually address the question you asked. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about like wealth inequality in, in later later podcasts. But I do want to move to the second article you wrote. You wrote. Right. And it, but kind of building off of what you're talking about with this topic regarding, basically, you're you're saying here that intervention does not really help the Americans, general American population's wealth, or really their safety, and actually might even. Threatened. I, I would say it mo- mostly, especially in the last sure. thirty years, are are our interventions. So and really, really since the Cold War, especially at the beginning of the Cold War, I would argue that not a single intervention has been in the name of American safety. So what I would moving to that other article where you're talking about the genocides. Right, um, I, I didn't. I know I didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, sorry. I'm happy it's fine. Know. No, I'm happy that you addressed the full the full question last time, um, but. What you say is basically the first kind of like paragraph or two is basically saying that the, the United States of America has been complicit, has witnessed, and has ignored genocides in the past. And you kind of take a shot at America doing that. Like there is some grave, very clear genocides happening, and America very comfortably did nothing. And I would ask how you reconcile this, going back to the other question, this anti-interventionist um, kind of notions of like intervention makes us worse with the blame that America has not done anything in these genocides. So you're basically saying like, and you know, you're anti-interventionist, but also blaming America for not intervening. Well, the, I'll hold off on the anti-interventionist. Sure. Because that's, I feel like you're one step from saying the isolationist word, which no, I am no, not. No. Um, I think you might be misinterpreting at least what I was trying to say okay. in the, the article. I was trying to say that the way that some of our officials talk about genocide and the United States' role or lack of role in it is often defined as we didn't do enough to stop it. As And it, it gives this idea that the United States has played a passive role and its biggest crime was not acting in time. I see. Um, so... I think that's useful to focus on. I don't think that it's wielded in a way that's productive ever, but it's useful to focus on because when we do advocate becoming involved in a particular place where there's a genocide occurring, it is worth examining, well, why would we become involved militarily here and possibly make the situation far worse when we didn't involve ourselves over here? So, for example, why is it that I think I mentioned this in the article. Why is it that there's such outrage amongst Americans now? It was not at the time, but now over the actions of Hitler uh, imperializing Europe and committing genocide, of course, uh, which there should be outrage. But literally at the same time, Winston Churchill was committing his own genocide and we were totally backing him up. Right. Uh, in, in India, you say, right? It was maybe a little more palatable. He was starving people to death, but he was yes. well aware. And he, when confronted with the fact that it was happening and was confronted many, many times, he blamed it on the people. He said, well, they shouldn't, it's something I'm paraphrasing, but basically that they have too many children. Mm. Um, why is it that 
the Holocaust is so horrifying to us, uh, yet we never hear about how the United States stood by as the Belgians committed genocide in the Congo under King Leopold. And I just think it's that line of thinking that the United States' biggest crime in genocide is that it didn't do enough. It It's egregious to me because it's acting as if the United States has been passive in these genocides when... Mo- I mean, I go into this in an article, most of the genocides, especially that have occurred since the Cold War, the United States wasn't this passive player. It was it, it was not failing to act. It was actively complicit in its perpetration, if not perpetrating it itself. Mm-hmm. And so I pick on someone in particular in this article, Samantha Powers, because yeah, this is yeah. like her her M.O. And, I've, and because it's her M.O., I've seen the consequences of where this leads. And she wrote a famous book called A Problem from Hell, and it's about genocide. And it, it, to do her justice, she, she has in the past identified some of the, the, the terrible actions of the United States that I would also identify as terrible during the Cold War. But still, her thesis is the United States military power can be used to stop human rights violations in the world. Yep. Uh, and then, Recently, she writes a book called The Education of an Idealist, which is, to me, just like a fucking smug name. Like, What's it called? The education. education of an Idealist. And she talks about her time in the Obama administration. And the, <laughs> the, the point of that title is to go, well, it's great to talk about all this human rights stuff until you are in the U.S. government and have to make decisions. But it's like, I don't for a second wonder... What would it be like if I was in Vladimir Putin's government? I can't judge him, but I can't judge other governments. I'm, I'm just right, using right, that right. as Putin sure. is someone that most Americans can Until you're in it. Right. So it's right. like we don't ever grant that. But here's where it leads, her philosophy. It leads to intervention in Libya destroying the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were talks of uh, Gaddafi is massacring civilians. That turned out to be to- totally false. He was massacring uh, people who were armed rebels, and this is revealed in the British House of Commons report. And there's also a, uh, a, a a guy named Alan Cooperman who reports that that Gaddafi never had intentions to massacre civilians. The roughly 800 people were killed in the early uprising, almost all of whom were military age males with guns. Uh, you know, there is Susan Rice, who might be the vice president, yeah. who yeah. Can, uh, was talking about how Gaddafi is handing out Viagra to his soldiers to commit mass rape. It turned out none of that was true. It was a lie or at the very least a fabrication. Yeah. So what's the result? So military force is not a precise surgical force. It's a extremely blunt force that, you know. NATO bombings or American bombings, they, they don't just target the alleged bad guys. They, 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 uh, they kill people. They destroy, in Libya's case, they destroyed their, their civilian infrastructure. So I'm just, I'm skeptical of anyone trying to say that our biggest crime with genocide is that we need to do more because our record of intervening militarily is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I misinterpreted what you, what you were saying there, but I think that leads to, and we're running out of, running out of time, so I have, like, two two more questions, but sure. one of them, kind of toward the end, but you're kind of mentioning it now, really, is, you know, when we intervene militarily, when we bomb, you know, when we bomb nations, we kill civilians, like that, and you mentioned, like, Yemen, for example, toward the end of your, um, the article about Trump, um, with Saudi Arabia basically committing a genocide in Yemen with, 
either with either bombing or or uh, famine, even. So, so my question would be like, do you have a distinction between military might or war and genocide? Like, is are those two separated? Because it sounds like a lot of what you're saying, a lot of what that article says, like that where we intervene militarily, we are basically committing some form of genocide or, or well, a lot of I mean, places. the definition, just like a yeah. word in the definition. Sure. And I, I'm sure like people will push back on some of these cases, which is why I, I tried to semantically uh, give credit to like there are other names for some of these events. Right. Politicide, you say? Something Poli- like yeah. So, you know, you asked me what the worst case of, of, uh, of United States behavior in thwarting self-determination. Sure. It'd be yeah. hard to, I said the Filipino case, yeah. uh, which is horrible, but it'd be hard to pick a uh, worse example than what the United States was complicit in in Indonesia. It was one yeah. of the largest yeah, yeah. mass killings of the 20th century. And it, it was not as it, like, that's why I get back to this failing to do something. It's like, well, the United States did do something during that genocide, and they what they did was provide lists of suspected communists to kill, right, right. and provided the communications material, the weapons, proceeded to arm the regime that took over for the next 30 years. Uh, you asked me, what what's the connection between military force and genocide, right? I'm asking, like, yeah, is there is there any separation to you between demonstrating military might abroad and genocide? Because it's yeah, I think ge- genocide is a specific. The United States is in a position where, no matter who it faces in it, off in a war, even if the United States faced off against Russia in a war, uh, or even China, the we're not talking about countries that have matched military power to us. Uh, but genocide is a specific definition. It implies the deliberate attempted yeah. elimination of a, of a group or a, or a culture. But a lot of people would say, I think a lot of people would argue, like, that's almost what war is, like the deliberate killing of, of a group of people because you're at war with them. So I'm asking if there's any distinction between those two to you. I think it goes, it kind of goes like this. And we're, again, we're debating semantics Perhaps, here, yeah. but I, I think that genocide, uh, Whereas genocide is a form of violence, so you could argue war. War is not always genocide. Like when the United States fought Spain, I, I would not argue that that's genocide. Um, I think it's also, you know, civilians always die in war, but when civilian populations are specifically targeted, I think we start getting into the, the war crimes, crimes against humanity, and of course the, the gold standard of that is genocide. Um, you know, I included those examples at the end just because they're debated. Like, I would argue that Vietnam was a genocide. Uh, we're talking about, again, the purposeful targeting of villages. We're talking about uh, the Phoenix program. I don't know if you, have you heard of that? The, where the CIA executed some 20,000 suspected leftists. Uh, this is purposeful killing of, of populations. Uh, right. We're talking about uh, driving people into concentrated parts of the peninsula uh, and having free fire zones. We talk about the de- the denigration of people in the in the training, uh, you know, referring to dehumanization. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of these. Of things... Of course, the napalm, which yeah. the napalm, the Agent Orange kills yeah. generations more. I think that those are conversations worth having. The bigger question is, we wouldn't even be having these conversations about like what should we term this? What should we term this mass killing? Right. I mean, 
were it not for this need of the United States to intervene militarily with, with mass violence, uh, industrial scale violence, we, that whether, whether you believe in the United States as a force for good or not, you have to acknowledge the United States has killed millions of people uh, just in the last 75 years. Yeah. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand that this doesn't happen in a vacuum when we have events like 9-11. I saw someone post on Facebook the other day. I don't, know why. don't, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. Uh, is right-wing guy. And he, yeah. he's like, he's defending the cops and he's posting all these pictures of 9-11, like, never forget. We said we'd never forget, but we did. And it's like, why is it that we for- we never forget but we expect everyone sure, else to. Sure. Like I would, argue, I would like show them pictures of the uh, uh, Amaria shelter bombing in Iraq from the first Gulf War. I feel so, like you wrote something about. Didn't you write something, or is that? I, I was. I started. Oh, okay, I, 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 I never, I've never it. seen that. But it's like, why is it that we never forget? Yeah. And we expect all other people to, you know. And it comes back. With, yeah. I don't want to come off as an Osama bin Laden apologist here, uh-oh, but oh, alert, <laughs> alert. So. <laughs> Bin Laden's one of his other grievances was besides the ones I listed, the bases in Saudi Arabia, yeah, the yeah. support of, of Israel, Arab and uh, Arab dictators. Another one was using starvation as a weapon yeah, they, on Iraqi civilians, the killing, which yeah. which I also mentioned as a, an example of yeah. what could be considered yes. genocide. And it's not just me; it's right. Dennis Halliday from the UN, along with other officials who termed that uh, genocide. You know, when you talk about five hundred civilians deliberately targeted i mean we have documents that show that that the reason they wanted they they bombed in the first place civilian infrastructure was to leverage the sanctions against saddam after the war yeah now why is it that we expect other people to forget atrocities like that but we can never forget right and i think that's kind of the crux of it like i'm you know what's the name of the podcast the context of empire. Things don't happen in a vacuum. I want not just us, but our students. I want anyone who listens to this to understand that things, people don't hate America for no reason. That doesn't mean America's always wrong. It doesn't mean America's evil. I don't want to get into this thing where like, oh, you just hate America reflexively. But we are, again, we're the most powerful country ever in the world, the most powerful empire ever. We have the ability to inflict incredible violence upon people around the world we need to be critical of our own policy and history in a way that other countries just don't have to because they can't inflict they can't inflict the kind of pain that we can on other people yeah i think i mean there's a ton to be said about like tracing the history of of total war which is like killing civilians through world war ii all the way up to the present day a a ton to be said about like the, the notion that even even being slightly critical of American policies, immediately people need jerk to like, why do you hate America? Right. And, and things like that. But I, I would flip that on its head, though. Like, yeah. This is where we get into people not liking what we're saying. But, well, why do you like America? Right. Well, we're the freest country on Earth. Well, based on what? Are we the freest because we have the best healthcare system? No. We Do we have the best education system? The freest country on Earth has the most people in prison. Have you ever seen that new, like the... I think it's called the newsroom that uh, I got to show you this. It's like a Jeff Daniels. Yeah, I don't know actors, but but needless to say, there's a ton. And like you're saying, at toward the end, is like this is called in the context of Empire, so that 
people who listen to this, students, whoever, get a broader picture of like of history that it doesn't like we were talking about uh, previously when we were talking about nine eleven, how like people want to think that history started at nine eleven when when we talk about the Iraq and Afghanistan war where it goes back decades before that. So to kind of close this out, like what can what can the people expect to come out of this this blog and podcast? Like what is to come? What more is there to talk about? Well, I want to flip some traditional narratives kind of on their head, and I, or I want to question some traditional narratives. Like the the name of the podcast, the name of the blog is context. I want to give context to things that are happening now. So, you know, it's not just for history, but it's for current events. You know, recently this year, they're rooted in it. What they're rooted in history. That that's exactly the point. So recently, the United States is possibly uh gonna going to attack iran yeah we'll and see. somehow forever it gets viewed as Again, if this is some equal playing field as if as if iran is just this threat to the united states and the united states responds right and the way that we should be talking about this is the united states is on a 70 year history with is in a 70 year history with iran in which the aggression has pretty much gone one way right if anything Iran has been restrained, you know, and I, we could get into the, this is a whole other podcast, but the United States overthrew the gov- the democratically elected government of Iran mm-hmm. uh, in 1953. They supported a very uh, harsh dictatorship in the, the, the form of the Shah with secret police, uh, with, with imprisoning of political dissidents, what have you. When, when uh, Iran and Iraq went to war in the 1980s. The United States supported Iraq wholesale. You know, we talk yeah, about what the United States did to Iraq. Well, Iraq was actually an ally of the United States with, that received full support. There's that famous video of Donald Rumsfeld meeting with Saddam yeah, yeah. Hussein. It didn't stop there. That we armed Iraq. Yeah. That the Congress took the Iraq off the state sponsors of terrorism list so they could sell them weapons so they could roll back the Iranian Revolution because Iran. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Iran's biggest crime was not that it took the hostages. It was not that it, you know, the, you'll hear today, people are so concerned about the way that women are treated right. in Iran. That had nothing, that has nothing to do with it and can, uh, and did not have anything to do with it. It has to do with the United Iran had the nerve to choose a path that was not in line with U.S. interests, that was not dependent on U.S. Aid and you and and being propped up by the United States. So the United States had installed a government in Iran in 1953 and in 1979. Uh, the Iranian people had the nerve to get rid of that government. Right. So I forget the question. So, so in the future, we're going to be. I'm assuming you're going to be talking about because there there is new tensions now with Iran. Sure. So you're going to be talking about you know these. I, actually, I shouldn't even say say new tensions, but tensions that are well, it's, boiling it's, again. It's, I mean, I, the more recent way to view it is it's kind of one long, ongoing tension. Sure. Since but now, now it's pretty, 1979, and you're going to be writing about that. Are there other things that you're going to be writing or talking about that you know that are upcoming? <laughs> well, I'll give you a preview of the, the next thing I'm going to write. I, I think I, I'm mostly done with it. I, I should be done with it next couple of days. Is this concept of treason and how we view it. Uh, Chelsea um, Manning is coming up for sure. <laughs> I probably will include Chelsea Manning, but it, it's just something I noticed when we talked, even people on generally on my side of this, 
when we talk about like the Confederate monuments, yeah. there's this go-to uh, denigration of the monuments, which I have no problem denigrating the monuments, but they, a frequent thing that's said is, well, these were traitors to the United States. And then I want to slow people down. Like, these were traitors who wanted to maintain slavery. Right. <laughs> but don't disparage the the term traitor because there is a long history of people being traitors sure. to the United States that we should view as uh, glorious and something and heroic and something to look up to. I mean, who are the traitors to the United States? Uh, John Brown was a traitor right. to the United States. I'm going to talk about this guy, David Fagan, who was an African-American soldier in the, serving in the Filipino-American War, who, upon seeing the racism his fellow soldiers inflicted on the Filipinos, oh. he left his unit and yeah. joined the Filipino Army. Damn. And uh, fought, fought and killed American soldiers. And so we, I think we need to not think of being a traitor That's as so synonymous good. with being uh, bad and... and, be, and we need to understand that traitor is often synonymous with being heroic. And I'll, I'll get into some more examples in the, in the article. But you asked me about the big picture of sure. yeah, this yeah. blog. I mean, I want to provide context. I, w- I want people to understand just how much American exceptionalism infects many of our worldviews, including my own, and, and how much we need to check our own narratives, whether they're coming from the media, from people we talk to, check our own assumptions. Um, I'll just end by saying something that kind of drove me crazy was last summer I took a, I had to take a training yeah. for this yep. AP class that I, I taught. And the instructor of the AP class, so he, he knows his stuff, of course. Like he, He's a teacher of AP US history. He's probably a much more effective teacher in terms of like getting kids good scores on the exam than I am. That's the most important thing. Right. <laughs> but he says, like the beginning of the of the session of the is a week long session. What I want kids to get out of the course is to understand that although America may have done some bad things, that overall we're a force for good in the world. And I think like going into teaching a history course with that mentality is like, well, if you have the foregone conclusion that we're a force right. for good in the world, you're very much going to be exonerating the United States from some of the greater crimes that it committed. Now, I'm already hearing the argument to this, but Mr. McKenna or Matt, you're you're going into it by trying to show that America is bad in the world. And that's not the point. I'm not trying to show that America is evil in the world. I'm trying to show that objectively America is the most powerful nation ever. And we need to take that into account when we teach about our history because we can influence lives around the world in, in a way that no other country can. So we need to be very aware with the impact we've had in the past because it very much is predictive of the impact that we will have in the future. Great. Well, that's what you have to look forward to in the upcoming blogs and podcasts of In the Context of Empire. Thank you for joining us. This is John and Matt checking out after four pills. All right. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Great podcast. We'll see you soon with more beers and more anti-American propaganda. Just kidding. Bye. (laughs) 